Hello, I'm Jensen Beeler. And I'm Quentin Wilson. And together we are the Two Enthusiasts Podcast. The Two Enthusiasts Podcast. The overly caffeinated motorcycling podcast. Is it overly? Dude. I'm not even caffeinated. I'm partially inebriated. You're coming, you're coming down. I'm coming up. Oh, yeah. You're on the you're on the do. I'm coming down from some sort of berry cider. It was berry delicious. It was berry delicious. Bow. See, that's how I know I'm overly caffeinated. When I can, when I can out pun you, very delicious. <laughs> you're, you're still laughing. You, that was a good one. <laughs> it's good. It's good. <laughs> what did we just talk about before the show started? Barry and so that's it. We're done. Oh, and send all your comments and questions to enthusiasts at asphaltfarm.com. <laughs> good talk. See you out right. there. So this is going to be a good show already. We're already feeling pretty good. Uh, Quentin. So, so I want to direct the listenership to. Follow us on Instagram because you're going to be posting up so much good stuff on Instagram. <laughs> so get out your phone. Oh, yeah. And do it right now. Oh, okay. We're getting this on your phone right now. There's okay. going to be a record of this. Right. Quentin will have the account access on his phone. This is if I can navigate Instagram. Oh, so what do God. I do? Wow. It should be like, it should be like literally like the last thing or the third to last. Add account. There you go. Click Bam. That. Okay. What is the username? Two enthusiasts. Is that two with a number? Strangely, <laughs> hate you so much. <laughs> What's the password? Donkey balls. <laughs> Seriously? Yeah. Why would you do that? <laughs> because it would never be guessed. Oh man, there I am. Boom. I don't even know what. I, well, I'll figure it out. All right. So now I'm on Insta. Insta. So, Damn. So, Quentin, so Quentin's got the power now. Okay. He's been doing a great job on Facebook. Everyone that's following us on Facebook is, knows this. So yeah. now we hope you'll follow us on Instagram as well. It should be a good time. Um, hopefully it won't be too many cat pictures. Do some Insta damage. Yeah. Insta damage, Insta damage. All right. Okay. Now what? We just got out the, uh, Adam Waheed show. Yep. Great having Adam on the show. One of my favorite, uh, journalists in the space. Awesome dude. Super fast guy on the bike. Um, so if you haven't listened to that, you definitely should go out and, uh, download that and give it a listen. Cause, um, I don't think there's anyone in the industry that is more enthusiastic about motorcycles than he is. I beg to differ. I mean, we are the two enthusiasts, but he is too enthusiastic. <laughs> yeah, he's he's for sure. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's, it's it's strong tonight. Yeah, it's it's good. strong. It's good. Yeah, too enthusiastic. <laughs> no, for sure. That's good. It's good to have somebody like that in the in the space and in our space. Yeah, yeah. And I'm gonna be go. I'm gonna ride with him this week. Actually, yeah. We're gonna go. We're gonna go Brapajuia around uh, Thunderhill on the new R6. So that'll now, be fun. Brapajuia has to be a thing. It can't, it's not an action. It's not a verb. You, you gotta have to figure out, all right, Brapajuia would be. No, it's like being like, it's like being well-read. Like, <laughs> you know, it's just, it's, I am it's like, it's like, a, it's like an old English kind of leftover <laughs> thing. Okay. With Brapajuia. <laughs> Brapajuia the second and I went out for a good ride today. <laughs> Tomorrow I will go Brapajuia up that hill. Good. That's, that's, that's use case all right fair enough I've, i'll i capitulate good i brapitulate <laughs> <I brapitulate. laughs> okay right um so yeah definitely go listen to that show with adam uh super cool guy glad to have him on the show we've got some pretty cool guests in the pipe uh that quentin and i've been talking about to get on the show and some people have said that they've wanted to be on the show so i think we're going to sprinkle them in as we do them and as the news kind of works but uh, on that same vein, Quentin, you and I have not sat down and talked about motorcycles in a while. 
No, we need to do this. You're, That's why we're here. So we've got some stuff to cover. And and one of the, one of the things I want to cover is the virus 986M2. Horrible, horrible name for a beautiful motorcycle. <laughs> It's a virus. It's a virus. Well, it's not even spelled right. Virus. That's my favorite part. And then the we were joking before the show, the 986, I have no idea what that reference is. Yeah, we forgot to look it up too. But well, really, all, all their cares? bikes are like a 987, the 988, the 985. When you, na- when you name a vehicle that's a motorcycle with a three-digit number, and it's not the, the size of the engine, so 986, and it's not a 986, you're an asshole. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> you're misleading are you <laughs> listening ktm are you listening huskamarna oh i hate that well yeah i ride they're... an smr 511 and it's 477 cc's I get who that. was drunk that no, day i understand that. that at least day? it's at least it's within five percent or something right well, you know why it is is because the model before it was a 510 yeah i get it and i understand that i i i understand so it's ducati did it with a which one, dude? It's even Mike. Seven still nine doing six it. is actually an eight zero. My nine three nine is a nine hundred and thirty seven cc yeah, machine. Right? Like what the hell? Yeah, yeah, no, that's there's a lot of bullshit there, and I hate that as well. I I loathe that, but whatever. What are you gonna do? Um, I I just with the nine eight six, and it's uh, three hundred cc's. Ah, give me a break. So either way, it's a cool looking bike. But that kind of worries me though. Like like. If you guys are fucking up the easy numbers, like what's the yeah. rest of the math look like? <laughs> you know? Yeah, well, it looks like eight thousand units a year instead of ten. That's what it looks like. But um sh- oh that's a that's a that's a burn. Burn. <laughs> all right, so with this virus. Sorry. Yeah, the virus. The vi- it's your oh. virus. Uh, all I can think of is when you say virus is the evil person from the matrix that's going after uh, Keanu Reeves is going oh, after age, Neo, Mr. Mr. Anderson. You know what? He's trying to explain what yeah. human beings are. You're a, you're like a virus, okay, right? Yeah, and, I got and you. And I was like, yeah. huh? That's just so. That's all I can think of when I see we see the word spelled out. It's like you're a virus. So these things have been around for a while. There's, you're gonna have to explain because I can't remember the deal. It's so Expo we, mode engineers, so gonna, right? Yeah, back it up a little bit. Uh, virus started out. I don't know how old the company is. They're at least. They're at least ten years old. Yeah, at least, sure. So the guy, they're 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 kind of uh, the leftovers from the Bomoda Tessie 3D. I don't think it was called the 3D then, but the Bomoda. It might be just the Tessie. Do you think it was one of the original engineers? Yeah, for the it was Tessie? a part of that. And so they share a very similar chassis design, which features a hub center steering. Um, well, let's do a little history design. lesson on that. So late '80s uh, Bomoda, which is an Italian manufacturer. That was headed by the main designer for the 916 Ducati Tamburini. Tamburini the TA yeah. in Bomoda is Tamburini. And he was kind of an instrumental person. I can't remember the other. Mori, um, M O, and the Giuseppe B- Mori and um, Bianchi or Bianchi. Yeah. Bianchi. So the three of those was B Mota. And they had been making chassis for. Japanese bikes generally, and every once in a while, Ducati. They had done a couple of Ducatis in the late 80s. This is back when chassis design was still crappy for most manufacturers. They would make a substantially better chassis and then make it look really cool too. And they had been doing that since the 70s. By the late 80s, they decided to make a really, really groundbreaking rad thing with a hub center steered swing arm front end. And if you look at the bike, uh, you'll have to check out some pictures of a, of a te- Tessie, which is thesis in Italian. Maybe you can put that up on the Instagram. I will. 
know. I'll, I'll try and figure that Booyakasha. out. The, I think the first one was actually a Honda 500 V4. I think I would have to dig in there, but I, if if I can recall right, the original thesis of to to make this was a was a Honda VF 500 or VFR 500 interceptor engine. Um, and it's pretty cool looking if you especially if you take the bodywork away it looks like there's a swing arm coming off the front and there's a swing arm coming off the back you can't tell which way is going forward if you're looking at it from the side and then it has kind of a weird um, system that controls the steering from from handlebars that are mounted in a similar in a normal spot but it doesn't have telescopic forks and that was always the issue um, there the whole point of it is to separate the braking and the suspension forces and they're very interesting to ride because of it i've yeah. i've had the have you ridden no anyone else? I've, so, I've had the offer and i just haven't been able to take it up the, one of my good buddies bruce that lives in malibu so he goes by malabruce of course good old malabruce had me work on his i had to do a full service on his tessie and i say had to because it took 24 hours to do the service because it's uh <laughs> the it's an older ducati engine with a bunch of weird things on it in the beginning so b- before before you even get to the chassis that needs to be completely disassembled to get access to the valves, um, it was a, a difficult thing to work on. Stainless steel half rings. Oh, my God. Anyway, it was a, it was a very expensive service for uh, good old Bruce. And uh, not to mention how difficult it is to remove the fairings. They're like every, – everything about working on pretty much every Bomoda is horribly difficult. They do not make things easy to work on. They make things to – look cool and or to perform well it's like that thing like you know you have three options and you only get to pick two yeah very much so then they want it to look cool and have a lot of technology but that doesn't mean it's going to be easy to work on for sure or cheap right it's going to be expensive so i got to ride it after that and it was in the you you would never believe it it was in malibu of course so he was riding his bomoda ferrano which is a I can't remember the, the nomenclature for it. I think it's a Diechi with a fuel injection system on it. Really rad bike. And I got, we've swapped these two bikes. This is probably 15 years ago now. And so I got to ride the Tessie and I had spent a lot of time on a BMW. I can't remember the, it was a telelever bike, a, a sport oriented, probably uh, it's a parallel twin S model, something or other from that time. I don't know, BMW crap. I can't remember it. But I'd spent a lot of time on bikes that don't dive under braking. That is the thing. That's the main thing that most of these bikes have that are weird front ends is that they don't dive during the braking cycle. You have to get used to this weird feeling. And for most people, it's vague because you're used to that feel that you get when the telescopic forks crush down and you you the chassis complete attitude changes, you're changing the rake and trail all at the same time while your forks are collapsing. Whereas these things, they stay solid. And you can adjust the suspension on, or not to just the suspension, but the kind of the linkages and whatnot to provide uh, dive if you want to on a Tessie or on some of the other uh, makes of weird front end, like the Hossack BMWs or the Telelever, Paralever things on the BMW. You can tune that into it. Even I've heard very much so on the um, on the Briton. That uh, was one thing that was very difficult to get right, which was giving the rider enough of that feel to where they knew where the breaking point, where their threshold was. And on Tessie, it's just an odd feeling that where it takes a set and after you've, you've, you're through the braking cycle and you just don't get the same feeling that you normally would. doesn't mean you're not still being able to go fast, but it just means it's different. And I loved it. I thought it was great. 
Well, there's also an issue too because to get the steering to work, there's so many little rods and oh linkages that like the swap yeah. between all that For is going to sure. add in even more. It could do if it, especially if it, if if it goes wrong over the course of time. So all of the rose joints, um, that's that's I can't remember. There's a million ways to call a ball end bearing a, ro- but I I call them rose joints. Not a, not a bell end. Not a bell end. A ball end. That you weird bell ends. That's <laughs> we're, a we're a couple of bellens. Yeah. Right. So uh, ro- tip to our British. Yeah. Listeners. So just just Google rose joint, and you'll see that there's probably 20 of them by the time your hand, hands are on grips to the, all the linkages that go down to to where the the front wheel is not only being steered but also articulating through its stroke. There's a lot of potential for slop, and you have to be super careful of it when you're rebuilding them, which is, again, it goes against Occam's razor. The simplest solution to the problem is the best. The hub center steering is not the most simple solution to the problem by a long shot. It's no. really complex, no. but it seems to be, well, it's interesting. So that's when, when you said that this virus is coming out and it has this and it's lighter <laughs> and it got this virus. Are we not phrasing? We're no, not phrasing. doing phrasing? <laughs> I was interested here that it's lighter, but I wanted to it make is. sure that the, the listenership understood the, the basis for this was the yeah. Tessie. No. So go and look up the, the Bomoda Tessie 1D and then 1DES and then there's, there's a, a Bomoda Tessie 3D. There's a bunch of them and then look at the, what the virus came out with, what, 10 years ago they had an initial... Yeah, so they started 2001. I had to look it up. So they're a little bit more than 10 years, but like they, they came out, I want to say they're first bike was the 984 and it used they're all well i shouldn't say they're all because the this this new one isn't but they they, they were using ducati engines so the yeah. first one was the two valve air cooled and then yep. they went to a four valve water cooled and i think that was the 985 and that's i think that's how we got to where we are now which is the 986 and it uses this was a bike that was developed to race in the moto 2 championship under the moto 2 Rule book. So they're not racing in the Moto2, the FIM Moto2 World Championship, but they are racing in the Spanish CEV Moto2 Championship with decent results. I mean, I don't and that's a whole nother podcast in and of itself. How the Spanish are so in tune with MotoGP that they even have a national series where riders can get acclimated to the Moto2 well, machine. You, know, you know the thing with that? You know who the media rights holder is for the Spanish series? Repsol? Darna. Darna, yeah, sure. So. Of course. No no kidding, but that's what I'm saying. That's of note yeah. Yeah. that that's a thing there, right? It's a thing. Um, so it's it's built for that spec, which means it's built around the Honda CBR 600 inline four engine. The, I did read at one point that they could build it around other engines per the sure. customer spec. Uh, everything, everything from virus is very bespoke and at the customer spec and all that. And... Uh, it's it's you know i haven't heard anyone talk about pricing in a few years now but when they first showed this bike in 2011 it was 55,000 euros for the race bike which is pretty cheap in moto 2 land 55,000 euros yeah like is that if you go to greece you get 50 you have to give them 55,000 euros that was a falafel joke <laughs> Your puns are horrible tonight. <laughs> Mine rule in your face. Uh, the street bike was was priced at twenty five thousand euros, and then the kit was uh, just a tad under seventeen thousand. And that's of note because you know what? There's people out there that I know that would be like, I want something super fucking unique, and all I have to do is go get a salvage. 
Honda yeah. or shoot, just buy a Honda and yank Dude. the engine out of it and sell the chassis or whatever, I, get the engine and then spend 16 grand. I, that sounds like a lot of money. It is a lot of money, no doubt. No. But when you think of relative to what's out there right now, that that's was, not that bad. That is totally what I would do. Sure. If I find like 17 grand in the couch one day, that is totally <laughs> what I'm doing. <laughs> You'd rather have that than the Honda SP2 or the Ducati twelve ninety nine. That's twenty five thousand dollars. Well, that was kind of the whole point of the story that I was writing. I, I kind of got sidetracked. The, the the story comes about because the street bike is finally available, and there's a couple things we should circle back to on that. But I got kind of in a tizzy because I was sitting there going like, "Here is a motorcycle that is so weird but so cool." And when we first showed it in two thousand eleven, the reaction was insane. It was one of the most popular stories on the site that year because it's this it's this edgy but beautiful design and it's got this weird front end and it's just, you know, it's it's a hot bike and you can sit there and you, and you can lust over it and it's, you know, for what it is, it's fairly affordable and it weighs like 330 pounds. That's the key and I want to know and how that, much of that's, that's bullshit. And that's, well, you know, until we put it on a scale, we're never really going to know, but... It, you know, they've been pretty, pretty consistent with their weight claims. And it, and you have to understand too, Quinn, it's all carbon fiber, titanium, super bespoke. Yeah. For 16 grand. That's the thing is like, really, really? Is that what, are they talking well, about the, the race bike platform or are they talking about the street bike platform where you could buy it as a kit? I actually honestly don't know. That would be a good question. Cause you can imagine there's a lot more cost involved potentially with a street bike where you have to have lights and all that I think, crap. I think you also have to understand there's like an asterisk of like, yeah, you can get it, but like which brakes are you going to use? Which, which, which shocks are oh, you getting? So with it? out. I mean, okay. it's, it's like everything there where it's like, you know, you can say, Hey, I want the beryllium calipers on, on the bike. <laughs> so, you know, right there, your price just went up 55 grand. Yeah, sure. Right. Uh, so, so it's, you know, it's interesting for me because you kind of sit there and you're like, it doesn't cost that much more than, say, like a Ducati Panigale S or an Aprilia RSV4 RF or um, I'm trying to think of another European leader bike. I guess that's kind of all of them. BMW HP, blah, 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 HP4, blah, blah. Yeah, with yeah, all yeah, the shit you, on thank it. Thank you. I always forget BMW for some reason. They're easy to forget. Yeah. So, you know, it's not that much more expensive than that. And, like, I would totally want to own this super sport over those super bikes any day of the week. And that's what I feel like the the super sport segment has, like, gone awry is where we're just trying to sit here to, like, we're trying to sell people watered-down super bikes and, it's, and, and price them a little bit cheaper. And, like, and we're surprised that they're not selling. Like, really? Like, this is a 600cc bike I would totally own. And the kicker is... It's a Honda engine. You know, if you want to pick like the most bland inline four on in the market, it's that Honda CBR 600 engine that's been around for literally a decade. But you know, will work really well. But you know, it would work really well. And, you know, like at the end of the day, I probably don't care that much if, especially if it's all dressed up like this thing. Is. And it's 50 pounds lighter than what it initially well, came out of. I and mean, right. that's a really big, if, if that figure is correct, and I get that it might be a little bit more, but if it's that and, and you're buying 16 grand's worth of trick titanium carbon light, oh my gosh. And then you can tune the front end and play with something new and interesting. I mean, I have a two wheel drive dirt bike for a reason. I like weird shit, right? Mm -hmm. I, I work for Alta because it's, I, I like weird shit. I want that type of thing. So I would be much more interested in getting something like this than spending the money on something larger for sure that, absolutely and, and there's a lot of people 
I've been watching it for 20 years being in the industry with uh, Ducati customers generally that want something a little bit different than the norm. You roll up on this thing at a bike night and you're going to be the talk of the evening. Yep. Full stop. Full stop. And, and, and if we're kind of truthful about why we buy motorcycles most of the time, it's for reasons like that. Yeah, sure. You know, it's this is a personal identity thing. This is an extension of who I am. This is me being different. This is me expressing myself through a vehicle or that's why you're riding a Husqvarna, what is it, 511 instead of yeah, a more competent, easy to deal with an XR 650? Yeah, well, sure. Yeah. Or CRF 250. I would say pick any bike in my garage except for my track bike. And that would be the reason why. Yeah, Sam, sure. Can't hate on anybody for it. I get it. I mean, you can kind of hate on it. And you're like, oh, dude, you could be doing so much more with so much less. I'm like, yeah, but I wouldn't Why? be nearly as cool. Yeah, I wouldn't be. <laughs> I wouldn't be having nearly as much fun doing it. Yeah, sure. So it's a super cool bike, and the um, it's interesting to note because like, I've been following this this project with a lot a lot of intensity because it's it, it is literally something like uh, I would really like to have one of those in my garage. Like I am tempted to email them, yeah. and be like, hey guys, like yeah, how much? Like, like I know the euro pricing has changed a little bit. So what are we talking in dollars and, and when could it get here? And what are my options? Cause, cause, cause I need a long-term test bike. Uh, cause, cause <laughs> I need, yeah, I needed to write a review for like three years or something. Yeah, well, what a good story that would be, would be not just getting one, but going through what you would have to do to build it. Like, yeah. okay. Procuring and that, and that, the that's engine. like the adult Legos in me is just like, yes. Right. Procuring the engine. Uh, sending the engine to Sage out and Bend to have him build it so where it'd be a solid but fast. But make it rad. Right. So I'm not I'd just be, putting around for like He's the first person horsepower. I can think of is a guy named Sage Wilkinson who works at M-Tech. I'd be like, Sage, we got to do some shit to this. I'm going to let you have this engine because I'm busy doing other shit. You do that, but I'm then once I get that bullet, I'm going to put it in the chamber and it's going to be rad. Then I'd be stoked because you'd have this... Again, an engine... I'm not saying a, a brightly lit candle lit at both ends, but a, a, a powerful, better than tight. stock. Yeah. yeah. That you could do two track seasons with or two race seasons with and, you know, not race, but you know what I mean? If I could, I I would want it to be about that spec and not have to use maybe too nasty a gas or maybe even not have to use. If I could do pump gas, that'd be great. That would be kind of good. It would just be because I'm going to probably ride on the street. Yeah, no doubt. Right. But that would be the cool thing. I would love to be able to. And then that would be a good build project, not just a good, cool, interesting bike thing, but then you're ve- you're vested. You're like, I have built this. It makes you feel like you've done the thing. So it's funny. It's funny you mentioned that because when I was in business school, we had to do, I forget how it came up. We had to do some sort of business presentation. We had to like, uh, I think it was an entrepreneurship class. We had to come up with a hypothetical business and I, and I did one on a motorcycle company and the whole kicker was that, um, the entire design was modular. And, oh my god, that's so weird. And the and the emphasis was on being able to like buy it as a kit. Dude, I just had this conversation with with one of my best friends. I don't know if you ever met Eric Nicolulis. Did you no. ever? Nope. He was with Energica. For, it'd, be, it'd be it'd be horrible if I have, and I just said no. Well, no. he he was the Energica rep. I'm bad came, with names. I'd probably recognize him. You face. probably would. So Eric and I were just having this conversation. Oh, I do know who you're talking about. Yep. Yes. And he we, was, we 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 had barbecue at your house like yep. two years ago. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So Eric. See, I knew I was going to screw that up. Yeah, 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 sure. No, you've only met him a couple of times. He's rad. So he and I were having this conversation about electric bikes. And he was saying, this is how you should do it. And, And he's right. The modular idea. You have a power plant. 
you have your batteries and you can configure them in a couple different ways to position them in the in a specific way but then you have a frame and you can put different swing arms different forks different bodywork different this and that to make whatever the bike okay here's your power plant you're going to make a dirt bike here's your power plant you're going to make a street bike here's your power plant you're going to make a flat track bike and I was like, oh, my God. And Alta's close to that. We're yep. not quite there, but we're close to that. And I was like, hmm. It makes a ton of I sense. I never thought about it like that. But then it's like, how do you sell it to people? Do you sell it to dealerships as kits? Or do you sell it to humans as kits? Or do you do both? Do you skirt a bunch of rules because you're doing it like that? Can you do it? Could you do it like Tesla tried to and do factory stores? But it, it opens up a bit more room for you to be able to do more, to sell more. It's a different model. It, it definitely... It definitely is a, you're going to have to do some things the hard way, but it's a different business model and it is interesting. And actually I wrote a story following up about this maybe four or five years ago. I think I was talking about the Moto Sis suitcase thing that he was doing. Yeah. But I brought up this, this business plan as well. And the whole idea was like, you know, my business plan was based off like internal combustion engines, but with electrics, it makes even more sense because you're right. It is just a battery and a motor and it doesn't really matter. Um, you know, the engine, there isn't like an engine characteristic where like, you can't just put like a super bike V twin in an adventure chassis and and make it work. You have to change the timing and lower the compression and, you know, change the gearbox and you're going to have to make, you're gonna have to make some, some modifications. The bones might be good, but you're gonna have to make some modifications to make it work. Well, that's not really true in electrics. It's literally, it's just lines of code. You know, if you, you, like you said, you might need to position the battery and the motor in different yep. spots to Otherwise, get the, the dump weight a tune into it. and the weight, right? Other, sure. But like the bulk of it is really just changing ones there and zeros. There are certain things that are horses for courses with like the motor. Maybe windings yeah, and there's a few like things structurally. But if you've got a motor that makes good torque throughout the rev range, makes ample power, you're just going to be basically changing how that power is delivered, you know, through throttle uh, request. Yep. You know, it's interesting. It, it really, the electrics really changed that for, for, for a lot of things. And I totally lost track of where I was going with this. You were talking about the business model for virus and how that you could buy a kit. Then we went from kit, kit to like, what would be an engaging way to build motorcycles? Cause now there's been so much kind of over the past 10 years, we went into the cafe racer realm where people were the, the doing doers or builders the instead makers. of yeah. right makers. Okay, the maker movement. The maker movement and the shop classes, soul craft style thing where people want to engage with vehicles. Well, I mean, you're preaching to the choir for me. I've done that since 1995. That's what I that's what I based my life on, which is learning how to work on the vehicles, working on the vehicles, racing the vehicles that I work on, doing the shit. When I qualified for an AMA round, I don't know how many other people were out in that race in that in that whole year that had built their bike from the crankshaft up. It's not that common and it's a point of pride more than more than finishing well. It's like I built that bike, I qualified on a bike, I tuned the bike, I did the thing, I have friends that help me. I've had a bunch of friends that help me, but I've been able to kind of collate that together and make an awesome thing and that for me was a point of pride and made me feel good and the same could be if you decide I'm going to build this virus, I'm going to pull in help from AJ and Quentin or or whoever to do a few of the things, or I'm going to call Sage and make this engine badass, but I'm going to build it. And by the time I'm done, I'm responsible for it. Yeah. And it's the cross to bear for me to make sure that that bike is safe and ready to go. Nobody else can own that. And then when you're riding at the track and you fucking blast by somebody and you know, Hey, I just built this thing. That's a really cool thing. And I, I don't think a lot of people 
have that now. It's more, you know, you buy it. It's like an iPhone. You just buy your bike and it's all done and ready and you configure it and you're done. You don't really have to put a lot into it. Yeah, I think you have to have a certain level of mechanical uh, masochism. <laughs> and that, and I think, and that's how, and I was listening to you talk and I'm like, that's how I would describe myself. I'm a, I'm into my mechanical masochism because I, I played with Legos as a kid. I probably should have been an engineer. And for whatever reason, here I am, you know, blogging about motorcycles. I love working with my hands, but I am horrible at it. And I nearly kill myself every time I do it. But I, because that's the thing, I really enjoyed the $80 I saved by not taking it down to a professional yeah. who had like all the tools and could have done it in 30 minutes and it took me three hours. But you might have learned a little but bit I, of something I, about but it. But I enjoyed it. Yeah. I enjoyed the fact that I, was a little I masochism almost there. killed myself. Yeah. A little masochism there. Well, I've been doing it for long enough to where I get like, I, I have an issue where I'll have all these projects and they bottleneck and I have so much going on that I, I can, I want to do it all. I want to do all of it. You know, we talk about sending an engine to somebody. I'm like, no, I want to take part the engine. I can do that. Not, I can. That's the fucked yeah. up part. When you know how to do the things, not only can I disassemble and reassemble the engine, but I know what I would need to do to deck the head and get the right pistons and set the squish correctly and do the cam timing. And I know, I know what, okay, I need to check P to V. Not a lot of people know that. I know if I had the tools, I would know how to cut the valves. I would know how to cut the seats. I know how to do all this stuff. And there's a point of pride for all that, but it's too much. And at some point you got to say, all right, I can spend my uh, week of time doing my job and getting paid, and I'm going to send this to the person that can probably do a better job than me. Even though I can do it, they'll do better, and then the, the, I can blame them when it blows the up. The Smithian economics to me is just like specialization of labor. Yeah. Smithian? He, Adam Smith. I, and I think this concept kind of predates Adam Smith, but I think he he put yeah, it together sure. um, the best in the wealth of nations. But it's that idea of like I spent three hours of my time, and, and there's there's some constraints beyond just sure. time and energy. But I spent three hours doing something that would have cost me eighty bucks. I make more than eighty dollars in three yeah. hours. I did not effectively use my time. That does not take into account my mechanical masochism and how much enjoyment I got from from you know getting my hands dirty and nearly killing myself and, yeah. and and hanging out and doing that and just enjoying a sunny afternoon in Portland working on stuff. But, um, the, the kit, the kit really ent entices me. Like even if, even if you sat there and said like the prices were the same, I'd probably be like, no, 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 I want that kit. I and I think, and I think there's something there and I wouldn't say that's, that's everyone in the industry. And I wouldn't say that's no, like, well, that's, that's how we're going to get new, new riders. If anything, I think it appeals to like the older yeah, demographic in the sure. industry that like, that still enjoys mechanically inclined things and wrenches on their own stuff. But the thing I wanted to get back to the interesting part thing from following the, the virus nine, eight, six project is watching the evolution with that front end, because it originally started out as, as like the Tessie with the pure, hub center steering and now if you look at the photo on the street bike they actually have um it's not a fork i don't know what you call it but there is a second spar second twin spar that goes from a steering uh column down to the wheels and that is your input for the steering and then the suspension and and braking and all that stuff is done off the uh, a second swing arm like like on a standard uh Tessie hub center steering design. Um, the only picture I can see is a side view. Yeah. It, 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 they paint it black, so it's hard to see. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Brembo, okay. 
there's another linkage and that goes all the way up to the handlebars. Huh. And they added, oh, and that, that, they added scissor, that in. It's a scissor linkage, yeah. I wonder why. They added that in that locate, about a year or so after it first debuted. Huh. And I think that's because of the the slop. It the probably thwa- takes away some amount of... The, they don't have to worry about locating... It's a it's a second link. It's a well. I don't know, think I don't think so. I think it's just for steering. I think it's just for for steering input. Well, I'd have to see the bike in the flesh, but my understanding is that that is just like a a, a swing arm and a yep. and a rod going straight up to the handlebars. Huh. Well, with a scissor, you know, it has to have a, a way to um, collapse. Oh, you're right. You're right. right. It would right. Uh, when when the suspension goes up and down, so yeah, right. okay, cool, no, but it but in that plane, it could do this, but it would still be able to turn it. Right, interesting. I like it because you're right. There's way less. The only, yeah, this is this would be interesting to have a a suspension engineer to chat with. Um, I was just at a friend's house last weekend. He's building. It was one of the engineers at Moto Sis. In fact, he was the suspension engineer for Moto Sis. He's building. He's a Bronco fan. He has an old late late sixties Bronco, and he is turning it into a not quite a rock crawler, but he's doing a pretty extreme thing with the suspension. He's doing it all himself, uh, and he's Another making mechanical it, <laughs> masochist. Yeah, he is straight up, and he'd probably say the exact same thing. Uh, and he's making it a, either a three link or a four link. And he was trying to explain what that means in car terms to make it a three link or four link, and how the links locate the axle as it's going through its stroke in a car and side to side and back and forth and how different link uh, amounts of links dictate what it's what it's called and then the extremes for what the use case is and in this case it'll be interesting to do a quick look through of how this is relative to the original tessie and see okay how did they do this what did it do? Did it did it eliminate parts count? Did it eliminate potential for slop? Did it eliminate cost? Did it or did it help with weight? Because that's one thing that I would wonder about is that the unsprung weight of this system seems like it would be quite a bit more, quite a bit more, yeah, than a standard uh, uh, telescopic fork style. Because telescopic fork, that's the wheel hub is is teeny. There's just houses the bearings, the brakes house on the you know, there's not much the there tire is like the bulk of the weight sometimes yeah, sure you know? whereas this you can see there's a huge amount of stuff going on in the wheel hub that is unsprung you know it doesn't matter that'd be interesting to know either way it looks wicked and i want one right? i totally i would totally want you one go have these? Yeah, well let's think about that let's figure this out yeah maybe we just need to like i just need like three more people to sign up for anr pro <laughs> maybe maybe a little bit maybe like four Good plug. Yeah, you like that? Yeah. That's how, that's how my future kids are going to go to college. <laughs> <laughs> oh, They're not going to college. They're <laughs> going to be sitting watching you ride at the track day on your virus. Oh, my virus. They're going to get a virus. <laughs> oh, man. Can you imagine? Like, I'm getting a virus. That's just the worst name. Yeah. I've got a virus. Have you seen my virus? <laughs> uh, speaking of... of Wow, we got a lot of show to get through. We we already went through a lot of time. Um, You're going to be chopping that up. There's yeah, all kinds gonna be, of, yeah gonna this be, is going to be a post-production be nightmare. Thanks, bud. Speaking of bikes that aren't super bikes, that might be cool. Yeah. The rumor this week, uh, Australian Motorcycle News reported that the Gixxer 750 will be getting updated in the next probably two model years so it might be like a 2019 but it could be as early as a 2018 
model year bike. Well, how old is the current iteration? Like a decade. I was about to say it's been around, yeah, it's been, but it's it's the only one in the class, right? Well, what's the class, right? So you know, super if, mid, super mid. So it's that and the nine nine fifty nine. There, you mean it is. the leader bike? Yeah, it might as well be. You could at least like you could at least. Oh man, Ducati! You could at least wink when it was the eight ninety nine. Be like, oh, it's eight ninety nine, which means it's like nine hundred and eighty CCs or whatever, because those numbers are mean nothing. Yep. But with the the nine five nine, you're like, no, it's a liter bike. It's a thousand it's, CCs. It's a thousand. Round it's a, that sucker you're, up. You're yep. just like, you're just doing bad Italian math. Yep. But I would throw the MV Agusta F three eight hundred in there. Okay. Um, sure. And I th- and it, yeah, you know, put the Panigale in there as well, the nine five nine Panigale. So there's there's a little bit of a class here. Six seven five Triumph, maybe, maybe. Yeah, but that's the Daytona or not, oh the Daytona. That's still Super Sport class. That's Super Sport legal. I know it is, but I'm just saying. You're just saying, it, yeah. I mean, Light, fast. If, if I was doing a like more a, a super mid shootout, I might throw the Triumph in just for shits and giggles. Yes, I would too. But um, the Jixer, the Jixer 750 was the bike that started it all. It was like one of the, this was like the original super bike from, from Suzuki. So, so I just, I like this little news bit because it's, it's, it's good to see Suzuki waking up and starting to get some new bikes out. And, and it only makes sense for them to update the seven, their, their, I should say their other Jixer bikes, considering that the Jixer 1000 is getting revamped for this year. And uh, in fact, I'll be riding that in, in Austin in a couple of weeks as well. Um, but and it in- looks badass and seems like it's it, everything I've heard from my colleagues that went to Phillip Island and rode the GSXR 1000R. Oh, man, I had to like yeah. have a migraine while I said that. Um, it, it, it sounds like it's a good bike. Yep. Is it the king of superbikes? I think to be determined, but it's looking good. Whereas like people coming back from the Honda launch were like, meh, 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 it's, meh. it's better. <laughs> yeah, but you know that was a pretty low bar. <laughs> oh, um, God, you're so hating. I I'm full of hate. That's a lot of hate. Yeah. All right. So the Suzuki, the so, 750, has always been a badass. It always has been. It's always been an easy and it's sell, got a, and it's got a big place in Suzuki history. It's yeah. got a very loyal group of fans um, that are that are buying it. I don't know how many they sell each year. It it can't be a ton. Because it is kind of a weird bike, but they're great. They're always they've always been regarded as a great track bike. Um, what what I found interesting from this rumor, uh, from this report, was that they weren't going to update the the Gixxer six hundred, and it was just going to be the seven fifty, which is really strange in a way. Yeah, it makes no sense because they have a lot of shared. They always have had at least some shared parts, whether it be bodywork, headlights, brake lights, tail lights. Rear sets, handlebars, all of all of the bulk of the stuff, even including the frame, it's always been really, really close. Maybe not exact, but just enough to where the initial frame jig in the factory could be the same thing, and then the next step would be a few weldments that are different, or something yeah. that makes it to where it's not hideously complex to make a completely different machine for what is ostensibly the same basic structure. And we were talking about earlier, it's like, well, the engine. How much different would the bore stroke be? Could you make engine cases that are light and lith enough for the 750 that would, could also house the 600 and not be too big and bulky for the 600? That was always the challenge with Suzuki over the years to do that because the initial, for again, like I was talking about, the initial SRAD, uh, I can't even remember what that acronym was, but this was the bulbous 1996 and on 750. Super um, Ram Air... Aaron, 
They're D. Direct. D, oh, D's. It's all about the D. D's. Yeah. So that bike Ooh, was the same size, the same body work, the same frame, same wheels, all this shit. There was maybe... Maybe different size in the in the rear wheel because you know, and there's a few other things I'm sure that were different, but it was generally the same bike, big and gnarly. And the 600 was okay, but it wasn't as good as the other. It was definitely not as good as an R6. But but Yamaha didn't have a 750. They had a the R7, but nobody had those. That was a there was what 50 of those brought into the United States. That wasn't like Yamaha saying, oh yeah, we're gonna make a lot of 750s for sure. But their YZF 750 and YZF 600s were eerily similar as well. Honda didn't even have a 750. Again, RC45. They, this was back in the homologation special days. The 750 VFR wasn't a race bike. So the the 600s, the F3s, F4s, all that were very much their own entity. They weren't a trickle down for Honda. Kawasaki, again, not. they were completely different. A ZX6R of that era was completely different than the ZX7. And it never really, there was never a, a bridge to it where Suzuki always was close. So now if they... You know, the I definitely have a Bothan Spy that has in, intimated that ni- 2019 will be a 600, um, a 600 year for sure, and it makes sense. Like again, we we've had the we were surprised when we heard that Honda was going to get rid of the 600. We were like, oh, that's stupid in the beginning, I and mean, then it's kind of come true that they're talking about it. But is it, or are they? Are we just waiting for the market to fluctuate? You know, like, and that's always been kind of like my cynical side, and so so. It, it's good to hear that you've got some 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 inside knowledge that kind of refutes this report because it 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 makes a lot more sense that way. It makes more sense that we would see a 750 and a 600 debut yeah, sure. in 2019, and maybe we see a new Hayabusa in 2018. Fingers crossed, because that bike's super old too. Fingers can, crossed, like like you care. I do. Oh, I yeah? absolutely. You're all about it. I'm all about it. You want to see that type of bike? You think I it's want good them everything? to get crazy with it. I all want right, them to come enough. out with a turbocharged. Hayabusa that says middle fingers in the air Kawasaki yeah, H2R okay. all day long we're gonna put you got 300 horsepower we got 400 horsepower and it's got wings and it's got a rocket jet and John Glenn's <laughs> coming back and he's gonna pilot it to the moon <laughs> that's what I want that's what I want to see them do <laughs> jet assisted takeoff yeah you know, <laughs> first, first get, in industry get crazy with it because <laughs> okay. um, truth be told the Hayabusa was one of those bikes that got me into to motorcycles really yeah, it was fast, man. It was, you know, it was sleek back then. It was, I mean, I, I kind of matured as a motorcyclist. <laughs> Those are my infant days. Oh, you're hating. You're hating. But um, but I still, I still think the Hayabusa is a cool bike. The, the what was it? The Formula Extreme Hayabusa? Or was it Formula USA? Formula it Extreme. It was Formula Extreme. Rad Greaves. He made that one. That bike? Nasty. I still think that bike looks hot. Uh, I would rock that. I don't know. Oh, yeah. it, it looks good. It's like a rolling suppository. Mechanical to me. masochism, my friend. Yeah, it, the masochism is an interesting thread. Yeah, it just looks like what you'd have to take if you can't take something orally. You're gonna have to plug it up your butt. That's what. That's what. It's like you say it like it's a bad thing. <laughs> you know, don't yeah. knock it till you try yeah, it. <laughs> okay, well, it's like Hayabusa's and Porsche. I I think it's called a Pan a Pan Americana or Pan America. Like Right, yeah, okay, you yeah. would, right? Yeah. All rolling suppositories, yeah. like the the most horrible, boring bleh, shape. How else am I going to get my wife and 2.5 kids to daycare? <laughs> I mean, like, come on. 
<laughs> what are you talking about? Uh, or and or your meds? How else are you going to get those? <laughs> All right, so yeah, good point. And then there is something to be said for that extreme King of the Hill style. We're making something super fast, awesome, and Suzuki's been good at it, right? I just like the idea that the Hayabusa and the ZX12R and the CBR1100 XX. Did I miss a bike in there? Yamaha never really got into that whole thing. I just like that there was a sport bike performance bike category that wasn't constrained by a rule book. And it was like anything goes. And that's why I like the H2 and the H2R. Yeah, I like sure. the Kawasaki brought those out because it's like, they're like, what if we weren't constrained by the rules? What if we didn't have Dorna telling us we can't have winglets? What if we didn't care about, you know, it has to be a naturally aspirated engine? What if we supercharge it? What if we turbocharge it? What if we put an electric motor with curves and you had a push to go button where here's 50 more horsepower on tap push to pass what if we came up with crazy ideas like yeah that? sure or the suzuki what was it the 588 or something like that the turbo 600 cc well that's that's that, the recursion concept that's supposedly coming out no, and, that would you be know, cool we, too. we'll see and yeah. that you know i get excited by that um, That's I, what it's going to take for Suzuki to reboil. Right now, it seems okay because the thousands out, but generally the rest of Suzuki stuff's a bit ho hum. I wrote a story about this, and I think it was um, um, what was it? Something, something, something Hayabusa. Wanting, wishing, praying Hayabusa. Yeah, because that was that to me. That was that was Suzuki's being like, we've got the best superbike, and we've got the best hyperbike, and we're the fastest, and we have you know there. It felt like there was life in the company, and there. You know, I think they're trying, I keep always saying that they're waking up. I feel like they're waking up from a slumber and I feel like they're trying to regain some of that lost footing and it's just taking them a while, but that's a good, that's a good rant about the Hayabusa. So it's, but it's cool to hear that you've got some inside knowledge and exclusive, exclusive. If we were like a British magazine, we would just be like exclusive Suzuki's going to war. Yeah. Sure. Or 600. Sure. But I am curious to see. You know what Honda does in the super sport market, and you know, seeing that, like, you know, in a couple of days, I'll be riding the quote unquote new R6, which is just the old R6 with some new bodywork and some traction control and some other cool little doodads. But it is kind of interesting to see where this super sport market's playing out and who's playing with what. And you know, I, I, I'm still kind of optimistic i guess is the best word when it comes to honda and, and the cbr 600 where you know maybe they're gonna surprise us in a couple of years and they're not necessarily out of the market they're just you know not quick to homologate it for euro four and to, to do yeah. certain things for the for the european market which is kind of dragging the other markets along with it and they're just going to kind of wait but I, I don't know honda's have a tumultuous relationship with honda uh, one bike that I wanted to talk about relative to Suzuki that I didn't know existed until recently, and that's kind of embarrassing, but not really. We had a, a conversation not too long ago about the, there's a Yamaha small bore kind of dirt street looking old bike that, that they're selling on the showroom floors now that is basically a throwback to like the late 70s. I can't remember the name of oh, it. the SR? Yeah. The SR400? Yeah, yeah. So we were talking about that, I think, briefly at some point. It might have been off podcast, but I think whatever. it was. I think we were talking about, because it was like, you're like, oh, that's a cool little bike. Yeah, I was surprised by it because I was like, oh, I didn't know you could do that. And the price point was right. It was like five or six grand, somewhere in there. So there's something called a Suzuki Van Van. Yeah. 
I didn't know this until I was I was cruising through Facebook and I see a, a picture of one. I'm like, what? Wait, what's that? And it's again, it's something similar. It's a fat tired, kind of quasi street dirt bike looking thing. And um, you know, I it just seems like a neat thing. Like, okay, that's cool that Suzuki decided to bring that to the U.S. And I I kind of like it. So just wanted to bring that out. Shout out to Suzuki because I think it's rad. Forty six hundred dollars for that yeah. boy. Yeah, it's weird. It's cool. I, I I can get behind that. Sure. Van Van two hundred. Check it out. Yeah, uh, it'll be on the uh, show notes. Yeah, show notes. I'm actually doing that. So now I need to I need to skip a few here to go to Suzuki. <laughs> I went from modular bikes to Jixers. Uh, Jixer. Oh yeah. All right, Quentin. We gotta get this. We gotta get this show uh, almost wrapped up. I have, I've got one more topic I want to talk about. Okay. Though. KTM. I don't know why we didn't lead with lead with this because it is probably the most important story of the day. Oh yeah. KTM has finally brought fuel injection technology to two strokes. This has been rumored for I don't know how long. Long, long time. Long time. Long time coming, and they finally brought out. Uh, the, um, they're going to bring it for their 2018 Enduro line. And so it's going to be the first fuel injected two strokes production fuel injection, two strokes um, from a major manufacturer. And uh, it's kind of interesting. They're using um, transfer port injection. So it's not direct injection, but um, I was going to kind of just lean on you to, to explain to our listeners what that is and why this is a big deal and why we should care. Well, the question will be is how much the transfer port injection, which says that it eliminates the need for pre-mixing of gas and oil together. I, I'd like to understand more about how this is all being done, and I haven't dug in enough to, to be able to comment on it too far, because that's the crux of a two-stroke, is that a, the charge from the carburetor is going into the engine circulating along in the crankshaft and, and piston area to lubricate the big end conrod bearing and small end conrod bearing, the big end being on the crankshaft and the small end being on the piston. And that's pretty much it. That's all that you're lubricating. There's bearings. There's probably, I don't know, eight, 10 rollers on each one of those bearings. And they just got to have some, a, a modicum of lube on them to keep them cool and keep keep an oil film on them so that they'll spin at 14,000 RPM, say, right? Keep on keeping on. Keep on keeping on. So that other than that, there's not a lot. The transmissions are separate and they have oil in them. And so that on in a two-stroke engine, that's all you need. You need oil in the gearbox and, and sometimes in the clutch. Most two-strokes are, are wet clutches, but I raced one with a dry clutch for a long time. And then the the, the front end of the engine the, where the piston and... Uh, crankshaft are you only need it for those small things so you the question is is okay if they're not if they're not if you're not mixing it then how are those components getting oiled uh or is it um is it is it being injected in some way that they don't need it or is the fuel good enough to i i don't know i'm i'm i think we're gonna have to i'm gonna have to dig in and understand it a little bit more but what they're talking about is putting in the injectors and the transfer ports so two stroke we got to figure out how to describe this on a podcast. Four stroke means suck, squeeze, bang, blow. The piston goes down, sucks in the charge. Then it goes up again and it squeezes the charge. A uh, timed ignition happens and then it fires the charge and that's the third stroke. And then the fourth stroke is uh, uh, exhaust. So the piston goes down, 
up, down, up. And that last one is when the exhaust gets taken out. Um, and it's done with a controlled um, valve system at the top of it. The valves could be op- actuated by camshafts below or above the head. They can be actuated with push rods. They can be actuated with tappets. They can, it could be two valves. It could be four valves, generally. Some are five, but mostly it's either two valve or four valve. So that is a four stroke. A two stroke, it's suck, squeeze, and one stroke, and bang, blow, and the next, right? So um, there, there's no oil pressurized in that area, or as on a four stroke, pressurized oil is fed to the camshafts. It's fed to the crankshaft. And sometimes it's just uh, splashed up to the the piston. Um, Oftentimes it's uh, the pressure is going from the crankshaft through the rod up to the piston. uh, And, and so oil, oil is everywhere all the time on a two stroke knot. Well, and, and on my Husky, the oiling system is so advanced. It actually oils the air box. Yeah, it's good at that, yeah. for sure. That way you never have to pre-oil your filter. You'll always have an oil filter. It's always good to go. Right? And then and then my drain goes out to the chain. Yeah, yeah. So that's total loss. That's, that's a self, total loss oiling chain. system, yeah, for it's, sure. It's cutting edge. It's perfect. Uh, so in the, in the two-stroke deal, um, that intake charge uh, gets pulled in by the piston squeezed through transfer ports that are in the cylinder. Most people freak out because they think of a piston and a cylinder being one continuous cylinder, smooth all the way up, and you're squeezing the intake charge. That squeezing of it uh, creates heat. Uh, When you compress air, it gets super hot. Um, That aids in combustion. Um, In a two-stroke, you're you're pushing it out the transfers at the same time as you're uh, sucking in. the, 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 The sucked in air is is getting squeezed right after the transfer ports happen. So you're pushing it out or it's actually getting evacuated in its own way. And that pushed from from the bottom end of the, it's really, fuck, I'm going to have a hard time <laughs> explaining this. Bottom line is if you put uh, the, the charge of the fuel, not the air, but the fuel in the combustion chamber, the worry would be that it would get carboned up. It'd be very hard to to directly inject it into the combustion chamber because then once combustion happens, um, there would be like it would coke up on the injector. Whereas if you put it injectors in the transfers as the uh, mixture of, or at the time it would just be air, as the air is being forced from the transfers up to the top of the piston so that the piston can squeeze it to the combustion chamber, then that would be a great place to add the fuel because then it's there, you don't have to worry about it in the combustion chamber. Uh, it's pretty easy access. So it would be easy to place them on the sides of the of the cylinder because that's essentially where the uh, the transfer ports are. And seeing the picture of the it's kind of a black and white picture that we have of it. That's what they got going on. And then they also have a very complicated system. It's I d- I don't know if it's a guillotine style, but it's a it changes the the size of the exhaust port. It's power valve. Every manufacturer has a different way of doing it, but it, it essentially through the rev range, in addition to the expansion chamber, which is the exhaust, there's also a, a a power valve that adjusts the size of the exhaust port through the rev range. So it would be a different size at idle and just off idle compared to at full RPM. And it might even be load specific depending on how sophisticated the engine is. But most of the time it's RPM specific. Then then the expansion chamber is a whole nother world of, oh my God, show notes. Holy shit. This is going to be a, a gnarly one for show notes. Um, ex- expansion chambers are very 
complicated shapes that force the wave. It's essentially your, your as with all exhaust systems, you're tuning. Um, it's like tuning a. It's not an accordion. What is the thing in a church? Like the big Jesus? No, Jesus. You got to tune Jesus. Absolutely. No, like when you uh, an organ, a pipe organ. organ. Yeah. So it's tuning a pipe organ essentially. So the sound wave going back after it's after it's hit a very specific spot and then reverberated back. It's the resonance. It to a point, but what it's doing is, <clears throat> and the same goes with a four stroke. You're trying to shove the last remaining bit of charge. Of, of intake charge and make sure that it all stays in the cylinder so that it can get compressed and, and, and banged. And if the, um, if, if that wave hits the exhaust port at the exact right time, it, it's called scavenging. It just shoves that little bit extra amount of air fuel mixture instead of allowing it to escape. It tunes when it will not escape. So at other RPMs, it, there, there might be kind of a sloppiness and it'll, and some of that stuff will just go right out the exhaust and it'll just, it'd be unburnt hydrocarbons just out into the exhaust. Whereas when it's on the pipe and it's tuned correctly, it, it just, it's almost like a little supercharger coming from reverse to keep that uh, outside of the exhaust port. You want to keep it inside the combustion chamber. That's what... Uh, that's why two-stroke expansion chambers are shaped in such a weird way. That's why you see that they're kind of like a python that's been that, that's in strike mode, which kind of opens up for a bit and then shrinks down into a teeny little, they call it a stinger. It's a little teeny little pipe. Um, so the port usually ends up being a certain size. The, the main expansion chamber is probably three, four, six times the size, and then it necks down to even a smaller, only big enough to exhaust the gases. You're really not worried about that on the on the first parts you're worried about tuning the resonance which like you said it's a it's a resonant frequency however and depending on the pipe you can have different size pipes for different it's it's kind of a recipe thing you have to have the right intake size you have to have the right carburetor size the carburetor has to be spaced far enough away from the intake and the pipe has to be the right shape at the right spot and the cone of the of the because it's a conical shape that goes into a kind of a uh, that python shape, and then there's a reverse cone that goes to the other way. Those shapes have to be tuned all for what RPM range you want it to be the most powerful at and how big that range is going to be. So say on a Honda RS125 road race bike, it was a very specific style of shape to be at basically... I don't know, 11 to 14,000 RPM. You didn't give an F what type of power it made at 6,000 RPM. You would dump the clutch at like, not dump, you would feather the clutch at 8,000, 9,000 RPM just to get it going. So the, the usable range of the engine is really teeny in that. But a 125 dirt bike, you want it to pull from as low as possible all the way through to the to as high as possible. And it could be 14,000 RPM for all I know. I don't know what a KTM rev range is. And you, you don't usually know on a dirt bike, you're just, you don't have a tack. You just brap, right? So that is a pretty complicated thing. And the, the fact that a two strokes, that two strokes in general can have that wide breadth is usually down to this tuning. And if they can figure this out on with these transfer ports to not only give you good power in the bottom, but also in the top, it's an amazing thing to ride a KTM 200. If you ever get a chance to, a, the KTM 200, not the 300. 300s are wicked. They're fast. They're awesome. But the 200 is unreal because they're so light. 
And this is the dirt bike version I'm talking about. I spent a lot of time in Alaska on one of them uh, a few years ago. And it blew my mind that you could be at the a super low RPM and thinking, oh, I'm going to bog. Uh, I'm not, I'm not going to be able to get out of this, this area without changing the transmission ratio. I'm going to have to, you know, do something here other than just accelerate, but it would just pull right through without even slipping a clutch. And I'm like, holy crap, a two stroke should not behave like this. Well, KTM's had this down. They've had it down for years that they know how to make these engines really good all the way through a rev range to be tractable from low RPM to gnarly and awesome and fast at high RPM. And to their credit, KTM is basically keeping two strokes alive yeah i mean the japanese brands really aren't supporting they're all four strokes and it's been ktm that supported this technology so didn't didn't yamaha though release that they're still making a 125 or 250 they're going to start remaking them or something like that i don't that's outside my core competency but but looking at just the model lineups yeah no doubt ktm husqvarna have a strong two-stroke contingency whereas the no one else really does so two strokes are rad. They're amazing things. The the part of me that is uh, environmentally conscious is a bit taken aback by them because you are burning. You mix oil into your gas, and when you're burning them, this is why they call them two smokes because they they smoke. You are you are inhaling burnt oil, right? And that it is uh, it is not the uh, the best for sure. Um, but I don't really. There's been a lot of technology especially on the car side with two-stroke motors to make them clean. You can make a two-stroke clean. We have the technology. Is it, you know, good money? Is it smart from a cost perspective? Maybe not. Maybe well, not compared to I don't strokes, know, man. There's a, there's a way less complexity. A lot of people ask, like, why did they go from two-strokes to four-strokes in Grand Prix racing, right? Shoot, we're, we're probably around a lot of people that have never ever seen a two-stroke race. To be fair, the European press release, press release that came out, says this these bikes are euro 4 compliant that's amazing so there's i really int- want to dig in and understand the technology maybe we should figure out a way to get somebody on the show that knows them backwards and forwards do we know, we have to use our ktm contacts i think we've got a ktm yeah a KTM we should do that that might be out. somebody to talk to it at austin or something like anyway it's, it's we should just while. go to austria that's what we should do totally Give me a flight. I'm I'm there. We're gonna need at least three more A and R pros subscribers. Yeah, can we get maybe four? Maybe yeah. four. <laughs> <clears throat> yeah, I I'm stoked by it. I think it's great. You know, Honda tried to do this. A couple of companies have tried to make clean two strokes over the years. And I, they keep they always run into a an an injected. A lot of this is like trying to well, make injection. To work. bring the conversation full circle, what was the demise of Bomoda? Yeah, yeah, dude. I had to work on. Uh, multiple V-Duets, right? So, These so, was a, so explain for people what this is. A, 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 a V-Duet in the late 90s was a Bomoda. Holy crap, you're talking about going first. So this was Bomoda's first attempt at a bespoke engine for themselves. This is the whole kit and caboodle was Bomoda design. Yeah, and it was a 500 V-Twin. 500cc V-Twin. V-Twin, but twin, two stroke. twin crank, two stroke. <laughs> And they had twin cranks. They, Why do you have a twin twin, a twin crank on a V twin? Um, that's a really good question. <laughs> Why they opted for that, I don't know. Because, like, say a Honda RS two fifty, um, or a TZ two fifty Yamaha, they were single crank, and they had different phasings for where the the rods were. But yeah, it doesn't make much sense if you're going to do it other than 
perhaps packaging to keep the the uh, conrods in line to be thin. Maybe they were they were trying to make it as thin as possible, but that would make a whole lot of sense to make two crankshafts, right? Because then it's just heavy and big. And I, I don't know. In the, on the 500 side, they might not have been able to come up with the metallurgy or bearing surfaces to make a 500 V-twin viable. I don't know. Uh, Aprilia and Honda both had 500 V-twin um, Grand Prix bikes, 500s. Yeah. Um, this was when they there was like a, a weight allowance. They were allowed to wear, have significantly less weight than the 500 four-cylinders. So they tried, but it was, they were just were never... They were just never fast enough. Yeah, they, just they, didn't they weren't even close, right? There's there's such an additive amount when it comes to the two stroke size, especially a 500 cc's, where having extra cylinders really played to the the way power was produced. You just, you just and, keep revving and revving yep, and revving yep, yep. and revving. Where on the yeah. V twin, you're 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 dealing with some things that are whether it be balance, and that could have been for them. That was probably the biggest thing. But for well, to be, I think the biggest thing was the fuel injection. That's why I brought sure. it up. They they started with fuel injection and they failed with fuel injection. And I, I had to play with two bikes. One was fuel injected and one was carbureted. The carbureted was the only way they got it to work. Was eventually to just throw carbs on the things. Right. The 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 fuel injected one was a nightmare. And it never ran right. It was just, you know, whoever has that, it's a rare, it's a rare thing because there's not too many of them out there. And it worked, but I wouldn't want anything to do with it. The carbureted version actually ran really well. It ran okay. I was lucky to be able to ride one of those things. I was, I was really lucky because it, they're rare. They're super freaking rare. And it had lights and it was California plated and the whole deal. It was a really interesting thing. I liked them in their own way, but it was right riding a paint mixer. It was really vibratory. It was, it shouldn't have been, but it was, I, I don't, you know, I don't know how it was balanced or not balanced. And yeah, I mean, I think that's a great lesson on on core competencies. Like Bomoda's core competency was chassis design, and I think people forget sometimes. Like, we've had basically a hundred years to figure out the four stroke engine, internal combustion engine, and it's taken a long time to kind of perfect that. And that 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 is the the competitive advantage that someone like Honda has over anyone that's going to come into this space and and compete against them is just decades upon decades of experience on how to make them reliable, how to make power, how to reduce vibrations, how to make them easy to work on. And it's hard to overcome that. The culture of engineering at any one of these companies from Cosworth that makes that makes racing engines that we saw in that world of speed to Honda that makes every conceivable type of engine. Can you imagine the millions, if not billions of hours of development time of engines running on dynos. I mean, I'm sure it's not billions, but holy crap, it could be if they had, who, who knows how many engines are running at Honda's facilities at any given time in any dyno. We're from, from weed whackers to MotoGP bikes, right? To Formula One engines, which are unfortunately really horrible right now. But that that's a, a, a big deal to have that culture that started in the 40s, 50s, and trickled over and over and over, and all that information that every Honda employee probably has access to, and all that tribal knowledge that's come through there. Oh man, yeah, I wouldn't want to go up against that. And there's Bimota saying, "Oh, we're going to make this 500 twin." Who knows? Who knows what made them decide to do it? But it basically bankrupted the company at the time, and it made it very difficult for Bimota to do better business later on. They were kind of almost in the in the way of being good, but. Well, I mean, that was, I think part of the pressure was that the, the, 
the other manufacturers were cracking down on what kind of access they could get to the yeah, motors. Sure. And so the, the, the solution was, okay, fine, we'll, we'll make our own. And, and also, to be fair, the other manufacturers were making bikes that were just as good as Bomoda ever could. In fact, well, they were going to be better. That they was, had, that was the issue. It. They caught up on the chassis side. If, and, and have a look at Bomoda. They almost won their initial World Superbike Championship with a Yamaha-based engine in their chassis because they were so much better. But it didn't that didn't last it, you know it wasn't going to be long before the japanese figured it out cuz that seems to be what their core competency is is taking something that's okay and then realizing why it's not and, and focusing on it and making it better and better and better and better and iterating it on right over and over that's why i have such a hard time with the company now and yeah. that's a podcast in itself but like um i was at icma when they rebooted a few years ago, and they came out with a design on the. They're using the BMW S1000 RR engine, and they were going to do like their own little chassis thing with it. And I'm sitting there going, like, "There is no way you're going to make a better chassis than BMW Motorrad right now." For I this don't engine. know, man. I would disagree with that. When BMW came out, what was it? 09 or 11, 10? When that first initial, uh, that thing was not good, and they and the World Superbike racers were not stoked. Like. But Moto well, probably could have made a better chassis. No, I, I disagree on a couple levels there. I think that bike was good. Um, but I think BMW racing, they were not up to speed. They did not so you, have... You felt it wasn't the bike. I don't it think it was the, the bike. I think it was it. the structure of the team. Because when they brought in Davide Tardozzi, things started turning around. Pretty quickly. And then, and then that was a point in time... When, it, when they didn't like initially dominate, BMW ends up pulling the plug. And it was just one of the things where like, I don't think they, they didn't know what they didn't know when they got into World Superbike. Yeah, they probably were as, as a lot of these companies, they have so much hubris. They're, oh yeah, well, we're just going to go and dominate. And when they get their asses handed to them, they're like, oh. I, I completely <laughs> discount World Superbike results when, it, when trying to judge how good a bike is. Yeah. Because it is so dependent on the team and it is so dependent on budgets and who's managing the team and who's developing parts. Like Honda's a great example right now. You know, with Nikki Hayden and Stefan Brattle, you can't tell me that Nikki and Stefan are the 10th and 11th no. best riders on the grid right now. There's no way. These are, these are um, a former MotoGP champion, a former Moto2 champion, and they are on a bike that is not being developed and supported at the same level that the Ducati or Kawasaki yeah. are certainly not the, you know, take it to the next step down. They're not being supported the same level as the Yamaha and they're probably, they're probably not getting supported the same level as the BMW is sad, but true. Yeah. That's not good. So it's, it's yeah. I, I, I hear those things. I'm like, yeah, I don't know. Well, look, look, look at, look at the super stock results. That would I would start believing super stock results as as a, as a measure before I believe superbike. But at that time, whether it be AMA superbike or it would be interesting to see world super stock if if the BMW was involved with it. But world superbike and anybody that was club racing them in those early days, they weren't sorted. The swing arm pivots weren't sorted. The swing the 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 rake and trail numbers weren't sorted. It wasn't it was okay, but it wasn't like good. It wasn't solid. And I would say a Bomoda would be able to look at the engine. But you know what? You could say the same thing about the 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 latest R1 when it came out. Teams were having a ton of issues with the rear end linkage, and it took them a lot of money and a lot of time to figure out how to set that up. Did it? 
like wasn't Josh Hayes winning on that thing almost immediately? Wasn't Yamaha outspending everyone else in that paddock? Yeah, combined? no doubt. But okay. it didn't. It didn't take long before they. But had I'm that just sort saying, of, what came from that. the factory didn't work. Didn't translate to the track like they like turnkey. A hell of a lot better than that BMW. That BMW suffered from it for years. It'd be interesting to, to dig that up because I haven't really paid much attention to it because I BMWs bore me. So that bike was like <laughs> kind of like, eh. When it came out, I'm like, oh, it looks eh. like it looks like a ten year old warmed over Jixer. Like, oh, well, that doesn't excite me at all. Oh, it sounds like one too. Yeehaw, right? So for me, it's I wasn't focused on it. I just remember complete people complaining about it like oh they would just burn up tires or they would do whatever they pushed a lot or whatever the thing was that was a problem be good to to know okay what did they do and how did they change it because i'm pretty sure there were some major structural changes you couldn't tell because they all look the same because they're boring as shit but they made some major changes over the years take a straw poll from the road testing moto journalist population right now and the bmw is probably the top bike if not it's definitely in the top three I think for a lot of people, it would be number one. They, much like a large intestine, got their shit together. <laughs> and with that, I bid you adieu. <laughs> adieu. Get it? <laughs> <laughs> well, I want to say one thing before we go. Oh, um, I want to see, like, if Bomoda was going to do anything with their next latest greatest, I think they should have a telescoping kickstand instead of one that swings up. I think it should just poke out. <laughs> Right? Yeah, right? You, you should see Jensen's doing it exactly this as I want. This is bad radio. Just right? And it would just it would just come from the from the bowels of the machine and just bzzz. It'd be like the alien spaceship when and it comes yeah. down to the land and they go Purr. Exactly, right? I think so. Not swing down, not hinge or pivot, just bzzz, well, right? could, could you have a hub center steering <laughs> yeah, just, That's what I want. That's that's what I want on my virus. I, I'm gonna I'm gonna get on the thing tonight. Yep. I'm gonna send an email and be like, hey, I want one. Telescope. And there's like a section that says like, well, what what amenities are you looking for? And I want hub center steering kickstand. <laughs> then I want to put it up. Yeah. Good right. talk. Good talk. Later. See you out there. What's it? What's it called when like you get like a, a turtle kickback? head like poking out, poking cotton? That's that something. That's something else, <laughs> dude. You turtle headed me. <laughs> I got a turtle head poking out. It's a heat. It's poking out. <laughs> I'm pushing cotton over here. <laughs> More power, Captain. Uh, we don't do much more of this. We don't do accents very well at all. Uh, <laughs> Our poor listeners. <laughs>